You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. Thank you very much. Um, goes without saying, we definitely feel the void of Robin and Donna this morning, so uh, I hope they're watching online. They better be. Um, so I'm going to call them after this and ask him what I talked about. Um, I want to pray for us this morning, then we'll dive in. I, um, everyone I've talked to this morning said they're really sleepy, uh, which is great, because uh, I'm really sleepy too. Um, but as I was, you know, kind of prepping for this morning, um, I have this kind of, uh, you know, rhythm where I prepare and I have notes and I have ideas and it's kind of this constant swirl, but then I take it at the last minute and just put it on the altar. Uh, so I don't always go according to plan. In fact, I rarely do. Um, but this week as I was preparing, um, I told Kara, I said, my brain is just not working. And it's just like spinning and swirling and I'm looking at the word and I'm looking at notes and I'm just praying and it's just like this weird brain fog. And that usually means one of two things. One is either my brain is just broken and that's possible. Um, or the other is sometimes the Lord just wants to create space. And we don't always get to latch on to one thing because God just wants to show up sometimes in that space. And so I'm excited for what God wants to do this morning and um, as we dive in and journey and just kind of gamble in church. So, uh, so Father, we just we thank you, God, for this seat and position that we have in you. And God, I thank you that we have this standing invitation for our thoughts to come and sit down right next to our nature. And God, as we just explore that, as we explore the depth of the gospel and what it means and what it looks like, Father, I just pray that something would be stirred, that only you could stir, something would be awakened, that only your voice could awaken. And so, God, we just yield this morning to you. We surrender just to your mystery, to your beauty, and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I think what I want to talk about this morning um, is kind of a trigger word for me, and I, I know we don't know one another super well, so I'll explain myself a little bit. Um, and I also don't know how some of this might land, because I don't know you well enough to know uh, where everyone stands on certain topics. Uh, but I kind of had this idea about following Jesus in the sense of following Jesus into battle. Okay, And I'm going to give some disclaimers, and then I'm going to try to back it up uh, here in just a bit. But I want to talk about this concept of um, warfare. Everybody say warfare. Now, I don't know your history. I only know mine. But my history, warfare has kind of, in a slight sense, become a trigger word for me. Okay? Uh, and I'm, I'm going to clean up this mess <laughs> in a minute. But warfare is kind of a trigger word for me because um, I've been in every stream of church in my journey. I've been in the stream where there is no warfare or the stream where we don't even believe there is a devil or whatever. And then I've been in the camps where, you know, the sword team is on point and they come out in full force and, you know, take the altar by storm. So I've seen it all, been in it all, and I've still come kind of to the same conclusions. Um, and I want to start by sharing this story. It was probably, I don't know, maybe a decade ago. Um, you know, and sometimes in our zeal for the Lord, we, we just get gung-ho about certain things and our zeal outpaces uh, sometimes the Lord. Um, but we were kind of in one of those seasons where it was just like, you know, deliverance, and we're delivering everything and everybody, and whether it's the mailman or the person in church, like, you just, you could, everybody you read, you're like, oh yeah, he's got it, he needs deliverance, you know, like one of those kind of seasons. Now relax, we're not going to do that today, unless you need it, I don't know. 
Um, but it was one of those seasons where it was just like kind of nonstop. You couldn't quite get the victory, but we were having fun fighting, you know. And I felt like the Lord spoke to me really clear um, one day. And he's, this is such a bizarre word that I had to process. But he said this really clear. He said, stop rolling your can- cannons out at Gettysburg. And I'm like, what are you talking? What? Um, I've never even been to Gettysburg, by the way. Um, but I started to process that with the Lord. And I thought about the fact that the Civil War was something that was so driven by um, part of the issue was, major issue was, was slavery. And you've got this battle that's fought over two sides. And one of those main things was people who were enslaved that was being fought for. And you have this significant battle that was the turning point for the entire war that changed everything. Um, and what a tragedy it is that sometimes we still roll our weapons out into the battlefield concerning a war that's already over. And when I thought about Gettysburg, I thought about these reenactments that people do. You can still go and see reenactments, and they dress the part and shoot each other and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, but what a weird concept to think that sometimes the majority of our warfare, and this is where I'm going to be very careful, sometimes the majority of our warfare is just a reenactment. And it keeps us really busy um, and really distracted. And it keeps us, you know, really sometimes even excited. But the truth is, sometimes nothing's even happening. Um, I'll tell you one more quick story before we dive into the Word. (laughs) Uh, I knew this person one time, and they were just hardcore warfare. And, you know, one of those people that, you know, there's a measure where it's like, man, God is on this person's life. Then there's a measure where it's just like, you're almost getting so outside the scripture that it's, it's crazy. And it was one of those people you just can't win with. And one of those people where it, she told a story one time that they went to a church and started casting demons out of everybody. And they even cast a thousand demons out of the pastor of the church. And my first thought was, how, did you count? Like, did you count 1,000 like, as they came out? But it was that kind of mindset where um, we're constantly fighting, but the challenge was she was so tormented and she could never get there. And I thought, how broken this is, because when I read about Jesus, Jesus wasn't tormented by demons. Jesus wasn't tormented by the devil. Demons were tormented by Jesus. And so if my model is Jesus and not just some antiquated warfare, that means that the presence of the enemy is not my problem, but my presence is his problem. That your presence as a son or daughter is the problem of the enemy. Now here's the truth. You can reenact a battle that's already been won if you want to. And there's some reality that will come to that space. The point is you don't have to. Okay. And I want to talk about what it looks like to battle the way that Jesus Battle because you don't see a Jesus that was tired, exhausted, and you don't see a Jesus who couldn't get to the finish line because Jesus crossed the finish line 2,000 years ago on our behalf. So I want to dive into Matthew chapter number 3. And read a quick passage, 316 through 17. And here's the thought I want us to have this morning. What does it look like to f- battle with Jesus and follow Jesus into victory? To sit in a place of victory. It says this, it says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was open. He saw the Spirit descending like a dove and alighting on him, 
And a voice fell from heaven and said, This is my son, whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. So Jesus, very significant um, moment. Jesus has hit this age that in the culture would have been appropriate for a rabbi to go and kind of start his ministry. And we certainly see the significant pivot and turning point where Jesus is being baptized and immediately his public ministry is birthed and the blind are seeing the sick are healing and so on, or sick are being healed and so on. But it's a significant moment because there's this announcement of sonship over his life, right? And what's beautiful about sonship is even in the Greek, there's two primary words for the word son. It's not like the English language, but this terminology is weos in the Greek, and it means that this is a mature son. It's a son that is an heir. There's this other word for son called technon, and it means that this is someone, I think it literally means a boy that's derived from his parents, but this other term that Jesus is being announced as is someone who is according to the nature of their father. And so Jesus comes up out of the water in this mature announcement of sonship. One who would be an heir and one would, who would be after the nature of the father is being displayed. Here's what it means to follow Jesus. It means that we're following him where he is and we're doing it like he's doing it. Right, Jesus comes up out of the water. There's an announcement of sonship. And immediately, the chapter turns, Matthew 4. And this is where we bring the devil into the story. And again, I don't think, maybe once a decade I talk about the devil in church because he's not worthy of our attention. But sometimes we need to just remind ourselves of where he sits. It says this, immediately after this announcement... It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son. Let me ask you this question really quick. Jesus has come out of the water. He's got this announcement from heaven that he is the Son. He's the heir. And after the nature of, right? Immediately goes into the wilderness and the question is, if you are the Son. Now, first off, this is not an unfamiliar scene because it's the same scene that you see paralleled in Genesis when mankind was created in the image of God. They find themselves water, uh, wandering in a garden one day, and it's no accident that Jesus is now in a wilderness because a wilderness is simply a garden that was unkept, and the keeper of that garden fell for this line which said, hey, if you do this, you'll be like God. Now, the truth was they were already like God, but they missed They missed holding on to that. Now here's Jesus, and Jesus is getting the exact same play from the enemy. If you are, he's challenging your nature. You understand that most, uh, quote, attack isn't actually directed um, at you. It's directed at what God said to you and about you. That's our struggle. You understand that the the devil's not, uh, this is where I've got to be so careful. The devil's not your problem. Right? The demons aren't your problem. They are a problem. But where did you ever see Jesus build his ministry on hunting demons? Nowhere. Now, when they appeared and they were tormented in his presence, he dealt with them. He had the authority to because he knew who he was. But Jesus' ministry wasn't a search and rescue mission of where's the enemy and what is he doing and I'm going to go find him and I'm going to expose him. In fact, there were so many demonic things going on around Jesus that he never even talked about nor the Gospels even mentioned. 
And you see the same kind of likeness later on. Paul in the New Testament is walking and this very annoying uh, demon-influenced person is behind him. And the Bible says that he ignores her. Basically, until I'm paraphrasing, but basically until he got annoyed and then he dealt with it and moved on. Right? Isn't it interesting, though, how we build ministry around what the enemy's doing? And then, isn't it interesting that if you really think and just reflect on your own this morning, the people, like these uh, friends that I had one time, um, <laughs> are the most tormented people that I knew. Right? And you don't see that in Jesus. So Jesus is announced as the son and immediately the enemy comes and says, if you are the son. He's challenging the position of Jesus as a son. Now, I'm going to ask you this question. If I came to you, can, can I use you as a spontaneous uh, example? Um, what's your father's name? Tony? If I came to you and said, hey, um, are you really Tony's son? Now, I say this as someone who had two older sisters, and they constantly tried to convince me that my parents weren't my parents. Um, and, you know, it's different. But if I came to you and said, hey, are, are you really Tony's son? You would think that is so absurd. Right? In fact, if I said, hey, you're not Tony's son, you would think I am absolutely nuts and there's no way you would believe that you're not Tony's son, correct? Now he's thinking about it. but uh, Right, because it's so, it's so absurd that we don't even entertain it, right? And this is the position of Jesus. Jesus was so fixed in who he was under the canopy of the Father as the Son of God in the earth that not only he knew it internally, but it was announced from heaven. Jesus was so positioned in that space that when the enemy comes, it's absurd to Jesus for his sonship to be questioned. Can I tell you that like our challenge is not the enemy, but it's this conversation that makes you doubt and second guess the position you have under the grace of the Father. And I'm convinced that so much warfare is a distraction as far as model, and Jesus is going to show us how to do it uh, through this passage. But Jesus is announced as the Son. He goes into the wilderness. The tempter comes and says, If you are the Son of God, Tell these stones to become bread. Verse 4, Jesus answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Verse number 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And again he says, If you are the Son of God. He said, Throw yourself down. For it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, It's also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give to you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said this, he said, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord, serve him only. And look at this powerful moment. Then the devil left him. And the angels came and attended him. So the devil left Jesus. I actually don't see one place other than this where this conversation ever picked back up. 
aside from demons being cast out, like, you know, in, in the commotion of Jesus' ministry, but he never stopped and built around that. He just moved on to the next thing, what he was actually there to do, which was to reveal the Father and set the world free. There's not another place where a conversation like this even happens. Which means we can live in a place where the enemy's not our constant torment and conversation. In fact, the enemy has zero authority over our life. He only has noise in a conversation. And the beauty of warfare is you don't even have to talk to him anyway. And Jesus just modeled this. See, when we have models that engage us where we're constantly talking to the enemy, that's a prob- problematic model. Because it means that I'm fixated on his voice rather than the voice that says, this is my son and whom I'm well pleased. You understand that from Genesis to this moment, and Jesus won the battle where Adam and Eve lost it. From Genesis to, the, to this moment, the attack was on who they were in relation to the Creator, in relation to the Father. So could it be that warfare isn't that I have to overcome the enemy? Could it be that warfare is I simply have to sit in my seat? Here's here's what warfare looks like. The enemy knew who Jesus was. He knew who Jesus was. The enemy knew who Adam and Eve were. Here's warfare. Jesus knew who Jesus was. Changes everything. If you are the son, well, Jesus knew that he was the son. Jesus did not move from his position. So the basic level of how we battle like Jesus, how we get victory over that condescending and that doubt-driven and that suspicion-sowing voice, the way that we get victory is to not move from our position as the sons and the daughters of God. Just to not move. And I'll back that up in just a moment. So back to my statement The enemy is not our problem. Our ability to stay in position is always the biggest challenge. Amen? See, when the enemy loses the conversation, he flees. Um, And again, I tell you, if if anyone's just constantly talking to the enemy, (laughs) just be very cautious. Because uh, that's not a great place to be living, and you don't see Jesus living there. There's a couple things here I want to point out, though. He says, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son. And again, attack isn't directed just at you. It's directed about at what the Father said about you. And it's funny because it's uh, it's interesting to me that it's always around what, what we eat. Adam and Eve, it was fruit, but for Jesus, the first thing is bread. Why? Because this is a life source. And he's saying, hey, Jesus, uh, I know you're hungry. Why don't you command these stones? To me, stones represent the law in that day under the culture, and bread represents life. So he's basically saying, hey, I want you to get your life source. This is what the enemy wants us to do. He wants us to get our life source from performance. But when you're a positioned son and you know it, you realize you don't have to perform to be the one that he's already called you to be. Jesus knew he didn't have to do anything to be a son, just like you don't have to do anything to be Tony's son. You are simply Tony's son. So even if an enemy comes or uh, Instagram pops up and challenges who you say you are, you're never going to leave your seat as Tony's son. I am Tony's son forever. I can't even get away 
uh, from the fact that I'm Tony's son. I'm not, you are. Isn't that beautiful though? Think about this. I didn't get to choose who my parents are. And I don't get to unchoose my parents. Even if I identify with a different parent, my dad's name is George. Uh, George is always my father. Always. Do you, do you understand that the gospel is so deep in its grip that you always belong to him? Even if you identify with something else, he's still the creator, he's still the origin, he's still the father. Isn't that fascinating? It's one of the reasons I think Jesus said, call no man on earth your father. He wasn't saying just disown or dishonor your earthly father. He was saying, no, your real source is deeper than an earthly person. Your real father is the one from heaven. Saying, go chase your origin. I I did a thing a few years ago, um, and it was a Christmas gift. And it was one of those, like, uh, ancestry, figure out who you are things. You know what I'm talking about? You spit in a vial and send it off, and that's gross, but that's how it works. Uh, I think Kara's parents got it for me for Christmas. And um, it was pretty cool because I wanted to know, well, who, who am I? You know, like, where did I come from? And I wasn't going to pay 75 bucks for it, so it was a great gift. Um, and I sent it off, and, like, maybe a month later, they send it back, and they give you this whole sheet <laughs> about who you are, and I haven't thought about this in a long time, so I'm going to butcher the details, but I was kind of annoyed uh, when I got the results. Because first off, I'm a 6'4", you know, tall, skinny, white dude. It's not hard to figure out kind of, you know, the zone I came from. Um, So when they come back, oh, you're like, what was it, Western European, 90% English or something, UK, yada, yada. I'm like, I wasn't shocked. You know, it's like, well, thanks, you guys are so good at your job. But then it goes on to give you all these maybes. Uh, it has nothing to do with sermon, but I just want to call these guys out. It gives you all these just generic maybes that you might have brown hair. You might have blue eyes. And I thought, wow, how do they know? Like, that's accurate profits right there. Um, but here's the funny thing. So if I came from the UK or I came from wherever my ancestors did, my citizenship um, is in the United States. Now, Karen and I love the UK, so it kind of could be tempting to go want to live over there. But if I walked up to the UK right now and said, hey, ancestry, whatever, told me that this is where I'm from and I'm going to claim it, uh, guess what? I'm getting kicked out of the country. Right? Why? Because I can identify with the place thinking that I'm from there, but the reality is my citizenship is somewhere else. So I have the right to live here. I don't have the right to live there. And what the gospel did in our position was he took people that had been influenced, that maybe did come from a broken background, that maybe did come from a fallen state that started in a garden, but he repositioned us and gave us a citizenship in heaven that even if you want to go back, you actually don't have legal right to live there anymore. That's the depth of the gospel. That he says, this is where you belong. And so when he says over Jesus, this is my son, that canopy and that statement is true of God's sons and daughters. I think it's over 300 and something times just in the New Testament this term son is used. It's important to the heart of God that we know who we are. Because if we don't know who we are as a son, we'll sit in the seat of a slave. And so much of our warfare models sometimes 
is a slave mindset. Trying to gain victory when the battle's already been won. And sometimes I think the Lord's just inviting us to come and sit down and don't move. Here's why it's hard not to move sometimes. Because it's easy to know something and it's harder to feel it. The truth is, if we're honest, we don't always feel like a son. We don't always feel like a daughter. But the Bible didn't say your feelings will set you free. It says the truth will set you free. And so my feelings always have to yield to the anchor of my truth. This is one of the things I think, I don't think Jesus probably had to do, but we certainly do. But when this announcement comes, it says, this is my son. And immediately an anchor should be dropped there. This should be the place that I can always come back to, remind myself who I am because my feelings are going to change, life and culture is going to change, the world's going to swirl around me, we're going to scroll through social media, and we're constantly going to be bombarded with this question on our identity saying, are you really? Is that really who you are? Is he really your father? And if we're all honest, we're going to entertain those thoughts sometimes. We're going to enter that conversation. But when we have these anchors that are built around truth and not feeling and not the enemy's voice or Instagram's voice, it means I have the place that I can constantly come back to and remind myself that I am a son of the Father. And this is what Jesus was doing. Jesus had victory over the enemy because he refused to move from his position. I want to talk about that a little more. Ephesians chapter number 6. Before I read this, it's interesting because these two kind of moments where he first challenges Jesus, if you are the son, he asks him twice. I think the first time it's more about his position. If you are the son, are you, are you really a son? Are you positioned there? But the second one's more about value. Because he says, if you are a son, throw yourself off. Because basically, if you're val- again, paraphrasing, if you're valuable enough, they'll come and catch you. And I think that's probably the realm we struggle with the most. It's easy to sit and say, I'm a son, but we don't always feel the value and the weight of what that means, according to the Father. And I think God wants us to know how valuable we are. Um, Ephesians 6. This is the warfare passage. Everybody say amen. Hmm. The sword team, come up. Uh, Look, if you like swords, you go for it. I'm not knocking it. Just please don't hit me. Mm. <laughs> uh, skipping so many stories that I probably shouldn't tell in church. Uh, it says this, therefore put on the full armor of God. So important. Full armor of God, meaning don't put on part of the gospel. The armor of God is built around the gospel. So don't put part of it on. Don't stop short. Put on the entirety Learn what it means to fully live in the consequence of redemption. To really put every single layer on. To settle down into that place. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Everybody say stand really quick. Really important. Stand your ground. Then he goes on to say, and after you have done everything to stand, stand. I'm going to read this one more time, because it's really simple, and it, again, makes me wonder why we run in circles chasing the devil. Therefore, 
Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, don't change your strategy. Stand. Don't, like, think it's not working and then go do something else. Don't think that, hey, I'm just kind of sitting here um, and I feel like I'm still being attacked or my feelings aren't quite what I think they are. I don't really maybe feel like a son or I feel like I've got an issue and it's the devil's fault. And here's what it means to follow Jesus into victory. It means the enemy is no longer our excuse for stuff in life. Amen? Uh, Here's the thing. If your tire is flat, well, it's made out of rubber full of air. It's going to happen. Right? Um, I was prepping for church this morning. I was really sleepy. Now, the devil did not slip something in my morning coffee. Okay? Um, sometimes we use this as a cop-out when we should just sit and stand. Right? Um, we live in a weird world. But stop giving the devil glory for it. It says, after you've done everything to stand, don't change your strategy. Stand firm then. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Again, not the belt of what I feel, but the belt of truth. Drop an anchor. Let truth be the thing that we are anchored to, tethered to, and constantly come back to so that my feelings don't drive me, but truth does. With the breastplate of righteousness in place, and this is why this is beautiful gospel, because God's not just making you righteous in the sense of you don't belong with him yet. He's already made you righteous by the blood of Jesus. But if you don't know that, you're going to perform for it every single day, never quite getting there. Because the newsflash, your performance didn't obtain it anyway, therefore it won't obtain it. He positioned you, and he's trying to get you to sit in the place that he positioned you in. Verse 15, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the... So there you go, sword team. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I just want to hit those three words one more time. Stand your ground. After you've done everything to stand, stand. That's warfare. He's saying, don't leave your position. Don't leave your seat. Don't fall for this lie that you're maybe not quite the son of God or you are, but you've got this thing you need to fix so that you can activate it. And you've got these hurdles of these mountains to get over, another valley to go through, and the devil's attacking you, and that's why you're going through. Like That's not what he's saying. He's saying don't change your strategy. Keep sitting in the place that he paid for you to sit. This is what Jesus was doing when the enemy came and said, If you are the son, command the stones. Throw yourself off. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus stood. He stood again. And then once he had done everything to to stand, he stood again. And after that third time, the enemy flees, conversation's over, and Jesus goes on and the world has changed. You understand that when we fight um, the enemy sometimes in the way that we do, it is a reenactment of what Jesus has already done. Meanwhile, the world outside, uh, and I'm kind of a perfectionist, so sometimes I'm never ready, like nothing's ever good enough. Um, Y'all pray for me. Pray for my wife. Um, Pray for our kids. But I feel like sometimes in Christianity, we don't feel like we're ready for the world's redemption because we got something to fix first and that's just not the truth 
He's anointed us and graced us for what we need to be for such a time as this. Now, I'm talking about one more concept, and uh, I don't think I gave you guys this verse, but I'll just reference it. It's in Hebrews 4, and he talks about this promise of entering into the rest of God, which really means to kind of settle down, to abide in, in his abode. And this is what I see Jesus doing the most. He wasn't anxious. He was never nervous. Even, even if the demonic manifest, it was never shocking. He was never off-put. He never had to go to the handbook and figure out how to deal with it. He was very comfortable. He was always at rest. No greater example than when the storm rises up on the boat, Jesus is resting. So even when everything else is shaking, there's this rest that Jesus knew how to sit in so that he wasn't conquered by everything around him. And when Jesus sat in that place, everything around him somehow adjusted to what he was doing rather than him adjusting to them. Jesus knew how to rest. You understand that we're called to rest in the same way that he's resting. And I... I think sometimes, um, if you're like me, rest is a hard thing. Um, because what we hear sometimes when we hear the term rest is we think passivity. Can I tell you that the rest of God isn't passive at all? Why? Because God spoke things into motion, they went into motion, and then he rested. On the seventh day, God rested. Which means uh, that what he spoke into motion is powerful enough to do what it's designed to do, and he doesn't even have to do anything else about it. Translate that to gospel. What he spoke over your life and how he positioned us is powerful enough that we actually can sit down in it by faith, put on the full armor of God, stay in that seat and trust that all the things we can't quite figure out and all the things that are swirling are going to be taken care of because when he creates and when he recreates and when he makes all things new, when you are a new creation, his word is strong enough that we can trust the rest of God and sit. And simply, I love that this is what this word comes from. We can simply just settle down with him. Like, just settle down. This is where Jesus was doing life from. The enemy wasn't Jesus' problem because he knew how to rest and settle, settle down. Here, here's what I, I think we have to realize. Sometimes, like, rest sounds passive to us, but I promise you it's violent to our enemies. It's passive to us, but it's violent to our enemies. It's warfare to our enemies. And it's not a warfare that you have to, like, bleed for and sweat for. It's one that you just have to rest. And the enemy does not want you to rest. That's why he's always trying to talk. He's always trying to get you spiraling, at just tunneling down the road of swirl, trying to figure out who you are. And again, you see it in the garden. It says, if you do this, you'll be like. But they were already like. Same voice comes. Jesus is there. He is the Son of God. Warfare is that Jesus knows who he is. And he refused to move from that position. And he settled down in that place. He did life from that place. And therefore, the enemy was not the problem of Jesus. Amen. So I'm going to say it again. The enemy, the devil, is not your problem. It's just not. 
at best, he's a conversation that you don't have to have. Amen? But he's not your problem. He's not the thing you've got to overcome. He's under your feet already. That's part of putting on the armor and settling down into the truth of what Jesus has done. Is I get to rest in that place and not spend my wills trying to conquer something that's already been conquered. Um, and again, I wish we had more time to unpack this because I know I'm open, opening up a lot. But that's where we're going to pray Robin gets better quick because he had to fix all this stuff. Um, I want to share one more thought and then we'll wind down and pray. But if you remember, it's in, I think, Numbers 21 where, you know, the Bible says that the children of Israel begin to murmur and complain. They started to speak against God and Moses. And um, they're complaining about the fact that, you know, bread's falling out of the sky or showing up on the ground like they're complaining about miracles and provision which is always great starting point um in fact they're complaining about the very thing they used to celebrate which is also a weird starting point and so the bible says that the lord sent serpents to bite them and people started dying and of course everybody's you know freaking out because they're being tormented right um and he tells Moses, Moses, go take uh, this bronze serpent, put it on a pole, lift it up, and when everyone looks at it, even the ones that are bitten will be healed. And so Moses does it, holds it up, there it is, the camp looks at it, and all of a sudden people are getting delivered. Now they're not getting delivered because the snakes went away, they're getting delivered because of what they're looking at, right? And even the ones who had a legitimate, real bite are now being set free because they're looking at something else right Uh, now jesus comes later in the gospel and he makes that statement he says if i'm lifted up just as the serpent was lifted if i'm lifted up he's referring to this moment saying if i'm lifted up i'll draw all men to myself in other words the snakes are not your problem look at the cross A revelation of what Jesus did, the fullness of it, the full armor of God, not halfway, not like Jesus partially redeeming, not like he gave me the option uh, to be a son or a daughter. No, he's repositioned me fully, and he's invited me to sit in that place, not just in some ethereal reality or truth, but in the way that I think. It's what repentance is all about. I'm adjusting to my seed. I'm adjusting to my nature. Because when I look at that, the things that torment me, and again, that's not always the enemy. Sometimes it's just a lot of life stuff. But there is beauty that when I behold him, when I look at what happened at the cross and how it included me, it sets me free from all the stuff that's biting me, all the things that torment me, the things that cause me to want to perform to get to some place. I start to realize I'm already there. And if I can realize that, and just stand in that place. And again, as the word says, after I've done everything to stand, keep standing. And when you've stood, stand again. Do not move. There's nowhere in that Ephesians passage where Paul says, get up your sword, take out your arrows, get out the butterfly knives, and I want you to go to town on the enemy. He just said, stand. That's warfare. This is the warfare that Jesus modeled. If we're going to follow Jesus into battle, it means sitting and resting in the fact that we are the sons and the daughters according to his nature. And it's absurd. It's absurd 
to listen to anything that would question that. It's absurd. It should be so absurd for us to question, are we really the sons and the daughters of God? Of course we are. Amen. I'm going to pray over us this morning. Um, Father, God, I thank you that the gospel runs deep. God, I thank you that um, as simple as it is, we have this position in you based on what you've done. And God, I know that we haven't fully uncovered or understood that reality. God, we're barely scratching the surface. But God, maybe may we really be a people who walk in the full consequences of redemption. May we really fully sit and settle down in every layer. May we truly know what it means to rest, that it's not passive. But it's actually one of the most proactive things we can do, is to sit with you in heavenly places. To sit with you under the embrace and canopy of peace. And God, I pray over this body, God, those watching online, that we would learn a rhythm that's easy and light. Again, doesn't mean it's, it's, it's easy in the sense of there's no confrontation or there's not challenges. It means it's easy because we know exactly what to do, and that is to stay anchored and tethered to who we are in you. Knowing that what you speak in the motion can be trusted enough to sit down. Because even when we're sitting, your word is still going forth. Your word is still working. And God, if you can sit down, then surely we can too. So God, help us enter into that rest. God, I even pray for those maybe this morning that they've been in a season they feel tormented and they've, you know, (laughs) I don't know what your story could be this morning, but I know it's a reality for so many people. And um, God, I just pray for your grace over that. God, I pray for your grace. God, help those who feel like they're fighting realize you fought for them. I know sometimes this is a lot to ask, but Father, I pray that they wouldn't just know it. I pray that they would even start to feel it. God, that feelings would start to be anchored to the truth of how you feel toward us. And we trust you with the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.